0: Hello, thank you for joining us for this podcast interview with Stephen McFarlane on his career in the US diplomatic service. This interview will be a hybrid oral history interview for the podcast format. We'll discuss Stephen's experience as a diplomat and ambassador. So quick overview of his career. He served in the US foreign service for over 37 years, largely in countries engaged in or emerging from conflict. He had 10 posts in Central and South America, and he has also served in Iraq. After retirement in 2015 to 17, he led the USA justice project on, in Colombia's conflict zones. And between 2018 and 21, he was a consultant on Guatemala for Millicom LLC. So Stephen, thank you for agreeing to share your story with us. Can you give us an overview of your life in the di- diplomacy?
1: Well, thank you very much, uh, Jordan. It's a pleasure to join you all and to be invited to join your uh, extensive community. Listeners, so my you know, my formal career in diplomacy um, started in early 1977 and continued for almost 38 years. And if I were to break it down, I'd say there was a, an introductory period where I went off on of my first two posts. Uh, that's what we call our assignments overseas. And mine my first one was. Uh, Uh, consulate in Maracaibo, Venezuela, two officers, four uh, local employees and a cleaning lady. And we attended to people who were seeking visas to the United States, Americans who needed passports, and Americans who were either in trouble or uh, had just been arrested, uh, usually for
2: uh,
1: drug smuggling. And so it was an interesting introduction to to uh, an important part of what diplomats do, which is to try to protect to the extent we can uh, citizens of your country and also to uh, engage with uh, post-country citizens. And then I became a economic and then political officer in Quito, Ecuador. And then say, those I would call that the introduction to my... And so as a political officer, you're trying to report on the political Goings on in the country. And that can be the workings of the executive branch or more broadly the state, the things going on in Congress or the, the justice sector that are of interest to the country you represent, and how that all fits in with uh, US policy. Uh, it also includes um, increasingly in the last several decades having contact with people outside of government. So that can be your political opposition, it can be civil society, journalists, it can be um, groups that are traditionally uh, excluded from uh, either power and certainly from the your typical, uh, what I would call inside diplomatic bubble. And that might be people who uh, are, are agricultural workers, they're factory workers, uh, it's women's groups, it's indigenous groups very much. Um, and and so uh, so I got, uh, I began to learn a little bit about that. And then like most diplomats, I had a, a, a tour in Washington. I chose as a diplomat not to spend that much time in Washington. And it was, you do that at a certain uh, professional risk because
2: you're
1: really, you need to have um, like, uh, you know, spend a little more time overseas than in Washington, but, but your career, your pathway to advancement is usually through uh, periodic check-ins with Washington. I only did it twice in my career uh, instead of like the recommended four or five times. They, but I did uh, I did that and it was on the, I was the Nicaragua desk officer early in the uh, 80s, uh, 83 and 85. And it was a time when when the US uh, uh, in theory was trying to negotiate its differences with the uh, government of then president Ortega, who's actually back uh, trying his best to look like uh, the Samosa dynasty that he overthrew. overthrew. Uh, but anyway, at the time we were supposedly negotiate, you know, trying to negotiate differences at the same time that we were trying to overthrow the government. So it was, uh, it was, a, it was an interesting introduction to, to uh, that part of Latin America because Nicaragua at that time was a, was a, a symbol of the ability of a revolutionary Marxist group to attract pop, not just popular support, but also support from, from political moderates and to take over a country oh, sorry, through, through uh, warfare. But again, with popular support, and then try to govern. And so this was—it was the first time it had worked since the Cuban Revolution. Um, so there was—it was a, a, it was a very exciting time. Um, after that, I went overseas again as a political officer to Peru. And this is where I'd, I'd grown up in the foreign service, and I finished high school in Peru and my stepfamily was from Peru. So it was, uh, it, was, it was fun to be back there, but I, I focused on the insurgency, the shining path insurgency, a Maoist insurgency that, that was unique really in Latin America and almost in the world. They, this was a group that actually uh, based itself on, on Chinese cultural revolution era Maoist thought. I actually ended up going at one point, uh, um, probably shouldn't have, but to a a recruiting event for the by the guerrillas, and they had a a uh, they put on a Chinese play in which the landlords are uh, oppressing the, the peasants, and the party comes along and inspires the peasants to unite and to uh, overthrow and kill the landlord. Uh, landlords, and, and they raised the communist flag to the sky, and and it was um, it was an experience that it, that exposed me to the the strength of ideology and the uh, intangibles that can like leadership and organization um, and self-sacrifice that uh, can be used by groups that we might not think are terribly powerful. Um, uh, Of course, I mean, as I say this, this was a group that uh, if they had, you know, we were targets of this group, it was a particularly uh, cruel group that used terrorism and, um, you know, I knew that if I were, if they ever caught me, they would kill me. So. So, but still, there's something to learn from how they how they operated. And so I did that. I then moved on to, uh, and then moved up. Uh, I became a political counselor, and for eight years, I ran political sections. And so that was my introduction also to learning not how not just how to practice the craft of of reporting on and writing about uh, political events, but how to lead others uh, at, just you know, three, four, five, but it's 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 a big step when you're responsible for other people, and and then after that, um, and that took me to El Salvador, and I would say that my first experience in Peru and my experience then in El Salvador, was just in the late '80s during the pretty much the height of the civil war in El Salvador, um, for me were really transformational. In Peru, it was the the uh, just the exposure to guerrilla violence and seeing this the importance of ideology but also i had experiences i went out with uh, anthropologists into, into the mountains and att- attended uh, a um an Indian religious festival theoretically catholic but in reality it's uh it's
2: uh,
1: pre-colonial and in reality probably pre-inca um where you you go up to about 4,000 meters by truck and jeep, and then you start walking, and you get up to close to the base of the glacier, which is uh, 5,000 meters, and you set up camp there. And there are thousands of indigenous that are coming there, and you realize that uh, a group, you know, the indigenous that you'd seen sort of more is uh, in their folkloric aspects or their Their status as uh, subordinates uh, heavily discriminated against in normal life in Peru. Um, They were dynamic. They were. They had. They had uh, identity. They were. You know. They were doing their thing, and and that was uh, an eye-opener. In El Salvador, where I moved on afterwards, it was uh, my. my experience there was, um, it was difficult. I think, you know, the United States was involved. It was supporting a, a government that uh, well, it had some things to its credit, its military uh, ultimately um, was as much the problem as it was the solution. And one of the things that stuck out uh, to me about my Salvadoran experience was, was uh, I knew, there was the, the the murder of the Jesuits in 1989, six Jesuits and their housekeeper and her niece. And um, I knew uh, two of the Jesuits, not very well, but I knew two of them. Um, Salvador is a small country. So I also knew the colonel who had uh, commanded the battalion that uh, carried out the killings and this was Directed. This was directed, but I also uh, Salvador being Salvador. You knew that that particular colonel probably wasn't going to go out on a limb and do this. And I also knew the people higher up, another colonel and a and a general um, who had given the order. They're currently, I think, being prosecuted for it in Spain. And and um, and then I knew the people in the government who were. Um, been lying to us about uh, covering it up. So there are all these uh, tremendous uh, challenges of reporting. That it's not just access to information, but it's also uh, trying to work through how do we do the right thing, and are we doing the right thing? So those those really those two experiences really made me a uh, much more of a of an uh, activist as uh, as a diplomat, and I I wasn't a you know wasn't a uh, um, I guess a committed. I wasn't somebody that was always seen as a troublemaker, but I was I think seen as somebody who um, would occasionally um, take the initiative to do something that he hadn't asked permission to do. And I started in El Salvador when uh, I decided towards the end of my posting that we needed to do something about the uh, um, the aftermath of the final offensive and the government's refusal to uh, cooperate in the Jesuit investigation and the government, the military's refusal to entertain negotiations with the guerrillas. And I got an invitation from the guerrillas to go out with an American journalist to visit them in the field uh, and overnight in Eastern El Salvador. And I, you know, I realized, you know, this is, I don't think I had explicit orders to um, not do this, but it's pretty clear. This was not what what a U.S. diplomat El Salvador was uh, expected to do, but I did it. I did it Um, and talked with them. And it it was over what was really interesting was the guerrillas were Essentially, they knew they were beaten. They knew they had to settle. Um, they they um, essentially outlined what they ended up accepting formally a couple of years later. And I don't think my, my visit necessarily pushed them towards that, but what my visit did do back in Washington because I reported on it was to kind of um, let them know, hey, something like you know, some bit, some significant change is possible. Um, and it really hacked off the Salvadoran government and the Salvadoran military, none of whom would uh, attend my farewell reception, but um, that's probably uh, a compliment. The, so after, after that, I did other uh, uh, postings uh, as political counselor in Bolivia and back in Peru again, uh, this time the tail end of the, of the Shining Path insurgency. And, the beginning of the Fujimori and Montesinos dictatorship of uh, the authoritarian rule. Um, and after that, I I did a year at Air War College and then I went on to doing work as the number two in embassies and um, about eight years, including a year and a half as Chargé where you're essentially the acting ambassador. I did started out in Paraguay and continued in Guatemala and then continued in in Venezuela. And in uh, Venezuela, that was during the Chavez years. And it was, when I arrived, it was really, I arrived just a couple days before Chavez really kicked off his, in high gear, his anti-American phase. And so it was uh, an interesting time to be there and to try to figure out how do you engage uh, with the Chavistas to the extent that you can, and how do you try to push back on their, on some of the things they're doing. If there's a like a, a a theme here, it's that I think you have to, as a diplomat, you have to try to really understand the real country that you're assigned to. There's the formal system, and there's of course the the stuff that most diplomats are exposed to, but then there's the there's the real sort of the way countries work, and even their flaws. I think are flaws by design uh, the result of, of uh, intention not of error and so you need to understand you need to understand that and the other thing is you need to try to understand your adversaries um, including I would argue the people who are trying to kill you you, you know you're not um, you know you're we're quite ready as a government to use lethal force against people who are trying to kill us. Um, and But I think in that situation, you really need to try to understand what makes the other person think the way he or she does. Um, you need to, and often you'll find that it's the, your natural contacts in a country um, don't know, uh, or they'll, they'll actually they'll say that they know, but they don't really know um it would um there's there's no reason um you know somebody from peru who grew up in lima in the upper class um is is probably gonna have a difficult time truly understanding what a peasant from high up in the andes um believes or thinks same for guatemala um so so um so I did. So I did that. Um, um, that period, you know, learning how to be an ambassador. And and when I joined, I actually didn't think I'd ever become an ambassador. Um, but I, towards towards the end of that the, that those eight years as the number two, I uh, in a year and a half as uh, acting number one, I realized, yeah, I, I could do this. Um, now, it's pretty difficult to be picked as ambassador, and. I, it was pretty clear I wasn't going anywhere, but I had this opportunity to go to Iraq in 2007 and I volunteered to head a provincial reconstruction team as part of the civilian surge. And, and I thought it was my duty to do it. Um, I, you know, I had, had no uh, Arabic language, but I had uh, arguably some experience in counterinsurgency and at least a, a, uh, um, had spent six weeks in military training in the Marine Corps as an 18-year-old. So I I thought I'd I'd do that. Um, Much to my surprise, when I was out there, um, things had changed back in that apartment and I was uh, picked to be an ambassador uh, in Guatemala. And so I I got to to do that. That was particularly fulfilling because I had seen the, you know, just the awful costs of war from my time as a Nicaragua desk officer and then as a political counselor in El Salvador. And I really, really uh, wanted to ensure that the United States, um, and I, I started under President Bush, but very quickly uh, it, uh, he was succeeded by Obama, uh, make sure that, that uh, we were not being manipulated by the rich and powerful, but rather that we were trying to achieve a sustainable um, um, objective of democracy and inclusion and and rule of law. Um, And that was just an awful lot of, uh, that was a lot of fun. And afterwards it was Afghanistan where I understand we um, were in country at the same time. Uh, where i led the the anti-corruption and rule law part including u.s police agencies and obviously uh, uh, did not have much of an impact on on the corruption problems there um, was a and and was a briefly a professor uh, on loan to national defense university but i i, I guess the, the the thing about my career is that it in a way, I, I, even after retirement, I continued working um, on some of the same issues. And so I went to Columbia working in the conflict zones on access to justice. And then I have worked uh, as a consultant on rural law and also pursued my own masters in security studies in the last couple of years. So that's, um, that's sort of uh, the, the arc of my career.
0: Great. Uh, thanks for sharing that very detailed uh, chronology of, of your experience. Um, so I've got loads of questions that I want to ask you about, about these. Um, but I think first, we'll begin uh, at the start of your career. So wh- why did you decide to get involved in the diplomatic service?
1: Well, I grew up in the Foreign Service. My father was uh, first an Air Force officer, and then when I was five, he joined the Foreign Service. Um, my, my parents were from Texas um and uh, this was at the time a, a big step my father was um, part of this post-war world war uh, sort of um ent- entrance of still white males but white males who weren't who didn't go to the ivy league colleges so my my and uh like a lot of people back in in the late '50s and early '60s, um, he had had military service, but that was true of much of the State Department. But anyway, so uh, so I this is what I grew up in. This was the Foreign Service was in a way my home, but it was also something that interested me. I I just uh, I'd gotten the bug uh, growing up uh, overseas. Um, it was also where I got the the bug for history because I I grew up in in part in places like Cyprus and Turkey and Lebanon, which were just full of archeological sites. Um, and I had a, a sense of uh, service as well, uh, that in my, in my family you, you it was, typically you would uh, join the military during the wars every generation. And there's this, this uh, idea that you, you had to give something to your country. And I was very interested in, in Latin America. So, that's sort of how I ended up.
0: I mean, so that brings me on to my next question, which was, uh, why did you choose? Like, why did you specialize in the law of What was the interest there?
1: It was mostly it was my it was my interest. Uh, although my my first two choices for uh, my first assignment, I, I there was a there was a post in um, there was a, there was a position in Niger and there was a position in Mozambique. Um, and I was interested in both of those um, but I ended up getting sent to Latin America, and after that, I found that Latin America had the the kind of uh, say compared to what we would our embassies in Europe, you would have more responsibility earlier in your career in Latin America. I think it was also true for Africa um, you'd also you'd yeah and i just i liked the issues more and and then it was the Latin American Bureau liked me. And so they would uh, offer me um, more choices. And because I had a family and because my wife was interested in working in the U.S. Agency for International Development, it was just a, a natural fit to look for countries, not only in Latin America, but also countries that were, say, not the Argentinas and Chiles and, and Mexicos of the of the continent, but rather countries that had uh, strong development needs and where there would be a USAID mission. And typically these also had, uh, were countries where there was some kind of conflict going on and that, that tended to be what I would uh, uh, focus on.
2: Okay.
1: And of course I have the family connection through my stepfamily family uh, to Peru and then uh, and my wife who is, grew up in Venezuela who's originally from Colombia.
0: Um, so I was wondering if you had any special memories from your experience that you'd like to share.
1: You know, the, yeah, certainly the you know the the, you know, the memory that I really cherish it's just being able to lead the embassy in Guatemala uh, and to especially to try to to lead it in breaking through these these invisible racial and class barriers to, it was a place where where I as ambassador, just by showing up to this annual um, state university student protest slash um, carnival parade, um, was was making a statement that we, we can talk as equal, uh, we can disagree, but we can talk and, but there was, I think also the, uh, the times that, um, essentially that I took the initiative and maybe broke some rules. Uh, I mentioned the case of talking to gorillas in El Salvador, but I also, um, have always believed that as you, as you lead, you have to be willing to take initiative and to assume risk Um, that's just physical risk, but maybe a risk to your career. But I, so uh, I led the embassy without instructions and countering the coup attempt in Paraguay in year Um, 2002, I uh, negotiated with no instructions, the unconditional release of American and Europeans held hostage uh, uh, in Guatemala. Uh, These were former civil patrolmen who were wanted to get paid for their service Um, and uh, also kind of uh, went my own way when i had to in 2013 in afghanistan uh, take some unusual measures to secure the safety of american contractors who were working uh, for people I was responsible for, and and where the obstacle was uh, ironically not the Taliban, the obstacle was uh, were members of the Afghan government who were threatening our contractors. So, um, I guess what I also recall is uh, just um, um, how awful war is, uh, the thin line between safety and danger, and the challenge of trying to truly understand uh, the countries we are assigned to and ultimately I'd say the thing that that I um, remember is uh, just learning and relearning the lesson that how important it is that all of us who work overseas use our time and opportunities to try to Make the world a better place. Uh, I think you can do that and serve the United States government at the same time, uh, but you need to somehow uh, use that opportunity to make positive change.
0: Great. Um, but I'm going to jump back onto the security question there, uh, just because you're raising it and your response. So I was wondering how did uh, how did you deal with the security issues? in the countries you were working in? Uh, how did it affect your work itself as well as your life, so, such as your, your personal safety and your family safety?
1: Well, that's a, that's a great question. And I think there, you know, the, the I, I addressed it in different ways that there was, a, there, there was the, the, the period where I was, had to worry about it more as an individual and also in terms of my family. And then later on as a, as a leader, I was responsible for the security of the people I supervised. Ultimately, as ambassador, you're, you're responsible for everybody, and it's um, it's a feeling uh, that that latter feeling as an ambassador is one that um, um, I mean it's um, it's it's a constant weight. Um, you are responsible for things you're wholly you're almost wholly responsible for things that you cannot fully control so it's you have to get used to that feeling of uh, of um, of um, lack of control um, and sort of more down in the weeds when i was a so when I was a reporting officer uh, in in peru, for example, what i um, back in those days um, people assigned you know diplomats assigned to embassies uh, of course, were uh, frequently authorized to carry weapons. Um, in a lot of these places, it became pretty clear that the guerrillas were so good at doing what they're doing that there's no way that one person, even heavily armed, would be able to defend themselves. Um, but we still carry them. Um, but I think the, the first thing is to understand the threat environment and um, and so, what I would do in Peru, my understanding of the threat environment is if the Shining Path uh, wanted to kill you, uh, they would almost certainly do it. They would not just kill you, they would, it would be intersecting fires followed by uh, the coup de grace with a pistol, and then they'd place a dynamite bomb on the body. I believe you're. The person you interviewed the other week uh, described one of those. That's, uh, that was, but it, the the flip side is that it took a little while to orchestrate. And so what I would do would be, I'd go up to a place like up in the mountains, like Ayacucho. I'd go there, um, I'd, I'd make a reservation. I'd go there. I wouldn't call anybody ahead of time. Um, and I'd go there, I'd go to the hotel, and then I'd start calling people or uh, of course, this is before cell phones. Uh, I would just go out and make cold calls on people. And and uh, then I'd, um, after a few days, uh, two, three days max, uh, I'd get out. Um, and what was interesting was that uh, I remember the last time I, I did it, I, I got um, called up by, A woman who worked for a front organization for the Shining Path who insisted on meeting me and grilling me as to my bona fides as a diplomat. And and then also got called by the Peruvian military uh, base and expressing outrage that uh, I was there without their permission. I didn't need their permission, but, um, and where they informed me, uh, if you stay here, we can't protect you. We won't protect you. So um, that's the kind of environment. Um, otherwise, I think. But I think a lot of the, uh, the again, the focus has to be what you what you know. Um, so I got sent uh, once to in El Salvador. I was um, we had to go cover an exhumation out in the countryside where where allegedly the government might have much. Um, sure, I can't remember whether it was. An airstrike, or whether there was allegations they might have uh, been people might have been executed, but anyway they had been buried. But there was going to be a formal exhumation and examination of the bodies. And the idea is, well, you know, the U.S. the embassy security says the only safe way to go there is with the Salvadoran Air Force uh, Salvadoran Army helicopter. Um, that's the way you travel. That's the way we travel. Uh, and I said, no, I want to. I just want to drive my uh, drive my my four by four. It's only a hour and a half uh, I'll do it they refused I had to appeal my boss told me started swearing at me and said if I if he told me to go by helicopter he would uh, and I, I told him you know I, um, there's just there's information there's just lots of cases of uh, the, the gorillas uh, shooting at helicopters and um, I didn't you know, I thought it was safer to drive so I drove um, he, he gave in I don't know why he gave in but he gave in so I drove. Um, quiet drive. I picked up hitchhikers along the way, military aged males that were probably gorillas. That at least let me know that nothing big was supposed to be going on. Got to the exhumation kind of on the early side. Um, and then we heard the helicopter coming, and it came, it started coming. And then all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. Uh, the gorillas opened up on the helicopter with uh, machine guns. And you could see the, I could see the helicopter start to wobble all of a sudden. Um, and then very quickly veered off uh, the way it had come. And I, you know, I, I felt pretty uh, um, satisfied that I wasn't in that helicopter when that happened and went back to the, uh, you know, to the business of hand of, uh, of observing the exhumation of the cadavers. But when I got back, uh, I learned that um, uh, actually the FMLM had managed to uh, wound both the pilot and the co-pilot, killed the crew chief, who was the door gunner, and uh, wounded all but one of the passengers inside who were coming to observe the exhumation. And um,
2: yeah, so in a way, I. And then I felt bad about, uh, yeah. Okay, um, so I wanted to
0: ask about about the skills that you needed to to do this work. I mean, some of the stories you're telling there really stand out. The you know the soft skills of being a diplomat. And um, so I was wondering, how did you build this kind of the skills and the knowledge that you needed to do this job? So I'm wondering, like beforehand before you started the work, as well as how that progressed uh, during your career?
1: I think, in in my case, I think it, it helped that I had I had grown up largely overseas. And when I was in the States, um, just about every place I went, I was an outsider. Um, certainly in the Middle East, I was in America and I was an outsider. Um, when my uh, parents separated, uh, when I was a boy and I, for a while, I periods I lived in central Texas, rural central Texas. Um, I was very much an outsider. Um, and then in suburban Washington. Uh, but the, so I think it, it, that experience is an outsider help. But I think also this, this experience, including in central Texas, uh, uh, you know, or any rural community, I think has ought to teach you about um, how people in rural areas. Might tend to think worldwide, um, so I think that helped. And I grew up knowing Spanish, and so that helped. I think the the um, you know the key traits for foreign service are want to, are having certain you know really really being excited about serving your country overseas, really being interested in how other countries work and operate. And the idea is to try to see where you know where we can somehow reach agreements where we're doing things that benefit both of our countries and peoples. But um, but I think the, a lot of the soft skills I had to learn on the job. And that would include communication, uh, the ability. We talk a lot about speaking a foreign language, but a lot of it is listening to a foreign language and really listening to a person. It's not just. Um, Getting the technical meaning of the words, but looking at the body language and the, the tones, and um, you know this this is important, particularly if you're dealing with people who um, might become violent. So, so, I, so ironically, it was uh, you know the, the communicate a lot of the communication I learned by um, um, Mary. Uh, I think the the act of marrying somebody forces you to certainly induces you to to work on on communicate, and so I, so in that respect, uh, as well as on just being a a you know a fellow observer of foreign cultures, I owe a lot to my wife. And I would say also having having children helped me uh, in that regard. Um, having to, just the the idea of of um, just having to to relate to somebody who is both like you and unlike you uh, particularly as, as they when they're younger so so there's that and then a lot of it is sort of on the on the job I think one thing you can learn before you join begin to learn is is to write and I was fortunate that I took some courses at, at uh, in my university that Encourage that but writing is something that uh, you know I found to my dismay and early in my career that no matter how much I worked on it I still got a lot of red ink on my reports and that's just a fact of life you just have to you never stop learning it I um I you know and I know you you served in the military and one thing that I learned before joining that really helped me I got from my, it was really just uh, six weeks of military training in the the Marine Corps Reserve. But um, the Marines have a way of concentrating their efforts and truly making an impression on you. And so in addition to learning how to do a, I think a very credible credible push up and how to Uh, operate and fire a weapon that is now only used on for military parades, the M14, Um, I learned to value the non-commissioned officers and who really make, make militaries work in my opinion. And for your listeners who aren't that familiar with them, that would be like your, especially your sergeants, your sergeants, your sergeant majors, your sergeants, down to down to corporals and lance corporals. But these are these these are the people actually get things done. And I took that over to the Foreign Service and and um, I always valued the Foreign Service nationals who largely were the complement to that because they were what made an embassy work. They didn't lead it but they made it work. The other thing I still remember um, was being told in uh, in a very colorful, frank, direct language by my drill instructor that I was to um, go immediately to the to to um, uh, clean the head, and the head in naval services is the latrine, the restroom that was used by myself and uh, Forty-nine other recruits, and I think it was there with one or two other people, and we were to clean it, um, and and we cleaned it, and and uh, somewhat to my surprise and to my pride for my and it was a moment of pride. Uh, the drill instructor improved it. Um, it was I think he had he had told us you know. You know, again, in language I can't repeat on this podcast, but it better be good enough to eat off. So, so, but the, the reason for this lesson is, um, I don't think I ever failed to appreciate afterwards, people who do the kind of things that you don't like. Uh, so if, you know, the people who keep an embassy going, who keep it clean, um, provide uh, and, and an amazing service, and if you rise in rank, you had better not lose um, sight of the fact that your ability to function depends on other people doing the kind of jobs that you wouldn't like to do. So, um, yeah, don't be a jerk about it. I guess is how what it boils down to. The other thing I guess is the, about the uh, non-commissioned officers and stuff is never, com- never uh, confuse. Uh, um, Rank with knowledge, or um,
2: yeah. Essentially, uh, you, uh, you
1: you uh, no matter how how high you uh, rise in rank, uh, you can always learn something from somebody else who's uh, lower ranking. Yeah, I mean, there's some
0: great lessons there uh, that also apply in the academic world. Uh, so thanks for sure, not with us. Um, so, you've mentioned very briefly there about your education. Um, I was wondering how did your education support the work that you did? Uh, so could you tell us about where you studied uh, and what you studied?
1: So, um, I did my undergraduate work at Yale University, and I majored in economics. And that was a that was a subject that had. Interested me. I mean, I would also been interested in international relations. Um, I had I'd always uh, been interested in history, um, and particularly in the classics, because my my father, when I was starting when I was, I guess six, would uh, you know read to me the children's version of uh, Odysseus, the, the Odyssey. Um, so i majored in economics, but the, the courses that most interested me uh, it was kind of later in my my time there were Roman history and Greek history and uh, a um, ancient history called uh, course called Origins of War. Um, the Greek and Origins of War uh, history were taught by Professor Donald Kagan, who, who was now retired. Um, but ironically, it was uh, one of his sons and his daughter-in-law who devised the surge strategy that put me in, uh, put me in Iraq uh, decades later. But for me, Greek and Roman history—you know—this is combination of ideas, uh, individuals, ethical uh, dilemmas, institutions, and just these broad arcs of rise and fall were just fascinating, exhilarating, and and. So I I took I I took a lot of that with me. I think part of the thing about uh, history is that there are there's not a history. There are different perspectives, and and there's the saying that history is written by victors. There's some truth to that. So if if I go to Central America or South America, certainly Central America, and you try to you ask about the history, you'll get from a lot of people, you'll get uh, one version where it's a, you know, a series of presidents and dictators and stuff like that. When if you if you uh, if you talk about if you ask uh, people who are indigenous or peasants, they may talk to you about uh, various uh, kinds of uh, repression and loss of land and water rights and stuff like that. So I think the the, the idea of perspective, the idea of dealing with sources that are contradictory and insufficient, because there's there's one thing that that hasn't come with uh, diplomacy is that you're you will never have enough information and you will often have contradictory information. So how do you weigh that? And that was particularly tantalizing in the looking at uh, classical history. Um, but I was also you know, I was interested in U.S. history and British history, um, and and. Uh, uh, Turkish history. More recently I've been uh, reading um, more about imperialism and then the, the uh, and decolonization just because I think it's uh, just very interesting. But uh, I think, so that, that, was, that was really important. And the, the other thing is that at least the way those courses were devised you got to write short papers and that was much more helpful preparation for diplomacy than say writing uh, long, uh, long uh, papers, but I think uh, the history gives you the sense of uh, perspective, and it can, it, it, particularly when you're looking at foreign policy, if you have, if you have history in mind, and, uh, you know, like there's Paul Kennedy's rise and fall of the great powers or whatever. Um, it you know when I was in when I was in Iraq um, in 2007, my Yeah, I remember somewhere in the middle of western Iraq uh, seeing a supply depot and there was easily uh, several acres of bottled water and I was thinking like you know this is expeditionary warfare at its peak but it made me think also about uh, Greek history and the Sicilian expedition which, of course, was the apex and beginning of the decline of Athens. And I carried around with me. I had the, like, I was dressed uh, similarly to the Marines. They have a, a, a flak vest, a kevlar of uh, flak and helmet and with your name carefully, thoughtfully uh, stenciled in the, in the back uh, in front so they know who you are and in addition to carrying a a handgun and extra magazines and your first aid uh, kit i had a uh, a dump bag on the side of the of the flag and in the dump bag i would carry a copy of uh, xenophon's anabasis which is the story of the greek mercenaries who after the fall of after the Spartan war, Athenian-Spartan war, the Peloponnesian War, uh, these, it's like the 300s BC. They, these mercenaries are recruited to fight uh, for the Persian king, and during the, one of the battles that they win, the king is ends up dying, uh, and there's a palace coup, and all of a sudden the mercenaries are no longer wanted; they are being hunted, and this is their their uh, march back uh, to the Black Sea and then back to Greece. And so I would, I would read that thing and I would, it would be interesting to know that I was pretty much in the same area of operations as uh, these guys were. And you know, the technology is different, but some of the, some of the dilemmas, you know, can you trust your partner? or how much can you trust your partner? How do you know what information do you have and how do you know it's the right information? And how do you keep going when things leak? So these are lessons of like the Thucydides says for all time. So I think that's one of the things that history
2: can, can offer
0: How did your uh, understanding of Latin American history, specifically in the places where you went, how did that inform your practice?
2: So, I think the
1: in in Peru, uh, certainly, it um, I wouldn't say that I had a a great grasp of say nineteenth uh, century history and before, but but I did have a pretty good grasp of 20th century. So I would say it would be a mixture of history, anthropology, um, literature, but the, the historical part um, was largely understanding the, the this, this um, sort of collision between the post-colonial Political evolution of, say, Peru, or for that matter, Guatemala, or El Salvador, and other forces—the uh, uh, the, this, this rise of capitalism and then of uh, of more with more global connections. First, it's connections with Europe and, uh, and Great Britain. Then it's connections with the United States. Now it's now China's a big player. But I think the you know the the history. Gives you the, you know, gives you the basis for understanding exactly or knowing how things have, have happened in the past. But it also gives you a basis for understanding the, the present, because in a number of countries, history is extremely controversial, because history is actually wrapped up in, uh, particularly in post-conflict societies, with the politics of memory what happened in this war and the war ends and they're still fighting about what really happened and in some cases uh colombia peru guatemala um it's they there are certain groups that insist um that the state did no wrong none at all um and which is not the case. So I think the, the history, uh, particularly when it's focused on the last like 30 or 40 years is incredibly important.
0: So you raised the, the point of controversial history there. Um, so US activity in Latin America has often, or is often claimed to be like imperialistic and have a negative consequences within the region. And I was wondering how you uh, how you reflect upon your role in u s. activity in uh, Latin America. And how do you feel that the u s. presence there influenced that history?
1: I think the I think, of course that the, simply because of its uh, economic size, what more importance, and of course, military strength, the United States was simple and geography destined to play a role in Latin America um, and i understand of course all the all the criticisms uh, of it i remember you know first getting an earful of it when i was in high school and talking to university students in in lima peru and this is this was at a time when of course the Cuban revolution was still ascendant um, memories of the the u.s role in the the, uh, and overthrowing the democratic government uh, in Guatemala were maybe not fresh, but they were still around. Um, I think, you know, I think the, the US is, I think, first of all, the US has gone through a number of phases um, in which it alternately tries to intervene and then it tries to leave them alone. Uh, and so I've done a lot of reading recently uh, about the good neighbor period. So there was a period of intervention from um, so certainly the 1890s through the maybe 1932 or particularly, particularly strong in the Caribbean and Central America, um, replaced by the, the good neighbor policy and a, uh, a, a period of not trying to get involved. Not trying to be the referee on on uh, elections and coups. And one of the results was that the the uh, Samosa Dynasty took root took root in in Nicaragua. Um, other dictatorships uh, emerged in Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala. the The absence of U.S. role does not necessarily translate into positive political impact on the ground, and so what I saw in Central America later on. um, I mean, first of all, I mean when I was, uh, you know, know, the karma is alive. I suppose in international relations, and so the a Republican administration overthrew the Guatemalan government fifty-four for being, in its opinion dangerously close to the USSR and dangerously leftist. Um, 30 years later, uh, Republican president, Ronald Reagan is trying to to, uh, find a government that will more or less be in El Salvador, what the Arevalo and Arbenz governments were in Guatemala, a lander form um line reform democratic opening uh um more economic opportunities stuff like that uh i'm not saying it worked out well i'm just saying that uh, it it the i think the us started to try to find a third way between the poles of uh a of the status quo uh, elites in Latin America and particularly in Central America and the attraction of uh, revolutionary overthrow. And this kind of middle path of reform was actually, um, encountered a lot of resistance from both of the, from both guerrillas and from the status quo. Um, so I think um, some you know a lot of the things uh, I was involved with. I personally disagreed with the decision to put an embargo on, on Nicaragua, and and I I uh, filed a dissent memo that used the dissent channel to express my views. Um, the embargo wasn't uh, wasn't um, approved that year, but a year later they approved it and they asked me to, as I was leaving, to um, uh, shorten my vacation so I could stay on and implement the embargo and I did so because that was part of the service discipline and I considered that being able to submit the dissent was also part of service discipline so then you get into uh, things where i think we you know we we've, we've made we as a country have made uh, some a number of poor decisions and sometimes have simply refused to uh, acknowledge some of these decisions At the same time, I sincerely believe that the the, the US is is, is an important force, can be an important force for supporting democracy and human rights and transparency and corruption and inclusion, particularly since the eighties. There will always be exceptions and we can talk about any particular exception you, you have but I think, that the, I think that the US can play that role. And one of the things that I find I would say in Latin America is what the United States probably cannot do in a lot of these countries, particularly the ones that have been the cockpit of uh, conflict is to be neutral. There is no real neutral position. Even if you somehow found a neutral position, um, one of the two sides or both will construe your position as favoring one or the other side. You will be, the US will be sucked into it one way or the other. So better for the United States to decide what it stands for, what it seeks to achieve, and to try to support those elements in a country that can achieve it and then sustain it.
0: Yeah, so in your sponsor, you were touching on a little bit about the responsibility of development. Uh, how did you feel in your role about that concept, did you feel that it was a, a a big responsibility to promote development within these countries? And how do you feel the, the effectiveness was of those projects?
1: Uh, well, that's a great question, and and of course uh, earlier in my career, my my um, relationship with with development was more trying to identify what was going on in areas, particularly areas where there might be guerrilla violence and try to get an idea for its effectiveness or 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 not. Um, as uh, deputy chief of mission, as number two or as ambassador, uh, I was responsible for everything every US agency and country did, uh, including uh, the US Agency for International Development. Uh, that is, by the way, uh, one of the key aspects of American foreign policy implementation, the ambassador uh, gets a letter from the president, and it reiterates: "There's only, there's, uh, you know, you're my personal representative, and you're responsible for uh, all U.S. government agency activities, with the exception of of uh, military personnel who are under a combatant commander, and even those, even the combatant commander." Always wants to get along with U.S. ambassador. So anyway, so you're responsible for development. The I think the question is, development to what end? So I think the the uh, development to um, let's let's simply um, create highways or schools willy-nilly and not think about how they're going to be maintained or where they're going to go or what they're going to be used for doesn't lead anywhere. I think the United States is. Made a lot of mistakes while it's been learning about effective development. So I think the I think one of the important things is that as much as we like to measure to build and measure things that are that can be measured, like you know dams and and uh, highways and schools, it's really the uh, the uh, um, more it's the intangibles that are more important. So I think it's you know, democratic governance, some uh, some uh, institutions that can provide accountability. Uh, and, and and engage citizens and useful feedback, um, governance that can allow groups that are historically marginalized to to have a voice. So in, um, in some countries, what's going on right now is there's a desire. Well, we're going to create jobs. We're going to uh, generate more GDP. We're going to do more exports. We're going to do this by by doing mines, uh, and we're all we're going to do it by of course by the book. It's nothing, nobody's gonna break the law, But the fact is, um, if you, the externalities that are generated by uh, a a dam or a mining project usually aren't fully accounted for. Um, The debate over how much of the additional uh, wealth that uh, a mine will generate usually isn't, there's no debate. yeah, you know, in like Guatemala, I think the, the tax would be seven or ten percent. Um, yeah, is that what? Is that enough? Um, and finally, um there's a tendency to exclude the people who are living nearby who are affected by it. And and I know that that, uh, that yeah, there there are times when there there are cases where people are simply trying to get a bigger share for their themselves or their community. But I think it's important that that these people have a voice. Uh, one of the things I did when I was in Guatemala uh, as ambassador is I encountered a uh, protest way up in the in the mountains, where there were a bunch of uh, of indigenous who were blocking the road to the to, to a, a hydroelectric project um, financed by Italians, it was an Italian company with Israeli subcontractors, and police were there. And the position of the company was send in the police, send in the military, use force, use as much force as you have to clean out the the indigenous. And I went there and I made a point of going there personally and and speaking uh, publicly and saying, everybody needs to calm down. Everybody, they're, they're simply, you're not gonna get anywhere by using force. It's not sustainable apart from being ethically wrong, I think in this case, it was simply, it's not, you know, you can clear it for a day and then they're gonna come back and then there's gonna be even more violence. So sit down and talk. And to the, to the indigenous, I said, you know, this is an opportunity to talk. Um, it's gonna be hard to block it. Maybe you could, if you really wanted to, but you probably can get them to address the issues that you wanted them to address and And that's eventually what happened. So so I think that development for the sake of development, um, no, I think there there needs to be a more holistic approach. You need to ask what the development's going to be used for, and is it going to help uh, your that society be more
2: you know,
1: democratic, just and, and, and a self-sustaining, in a sustaining a sustainable way?
2: Excellent. So, I'm going to move on to the final
0: question now, just for the purpose of time. Um, so, finally, now that you're retired, and looking back on your career as a diplomat, what do you feel you contributed to the countries in which you worked?
2: Uh, I think the uh,
1: I think the first question, of course, would be what did I contribute to the United States. Um, and I think I, you know, I did my best to represent them in some difficult places, um, on some, some really difficult and sometimes ethically challenging issues. And didn't, you know, did my part to try to make the United States appear to be, uh, to, to, to uh, make the United States government be seen as a, um, a partner who was more open. Um, and was perhaps different from the United States that they knew, say, from the you know, 1950s, 60s, and 70s. So with the, with the countries, I, I think um, it varies. I think I would be the first to, to say that in Afghanistan, I'm not sure. I know I, know I and others tried hard, but ultimately we uh, Ultimately, we failed. That might be a discussion for another another time as to why we failed. One reason I think we failed was that we we uh,
2: um, failed to uh,
1: police our relationship with the Afghan government. Um, we did not. We did not. Uh, we should have issued an ultimatum on corruption and left, if need be, ten years before. Um, I think Guatemala, what, what I, what I, I know what, according to others, uh, I think what I, I contributed was, again, this sense that the United States talks to everybody, not just to the rich, not just to the powerful. The U.S. talks to everybody. Um, and this resonates a lot in a country where hundreds of thousands are trying to emigrate each year to the United States. Um, they believe in the American dream or their version of it. Um, and
2: I think the uh, they
1: uh, I managed to contribute a considerable amount to, to uh, advancing at, the, at that time uh, issues of democracy, law, and human rights. Sadly, there's been a, a, a retrogression in uh, Central America and also in Guatemala and all of those issues. But you know, I and the people that I led, representing our government, managed to show people that there is in fact a way forward that uh, um, where governments can be accountable.
2: I think, uh, and in the, in the in the other places, um, I think. Um, a lot of it was being
1: seen as a as an American diplomat who was interested again in all forces in the country, not just um, the ones that were close to us, and in trying at the margins to to uh, intervene on issues that could help both countries. Um, in Venezuela, for example, I intervened. Uh, try to get a successfully got a a you know, opposition leader who's still an opposition leader out of jail um in paraguay it was helping to prevent that coup attempt which would have undone democrat what democratic gains there were um in iraq it was being part of a an effort to try to build an alternative to the Al-Qaeda in Iraq, out there in the desert. And the tragedy there was that, that the Marines did this. I was a very small, very, very, very small piece of this. Uh, the Marines did this, they did it well. Uh, and then uh, after we left, the Iraqi government uh, renewed its its uh, civil war essentially on Sunnis, and Pushed them into the arms of what now became the Islamic State. So, to some extent, uh, going back to a very American figure, to uh, to promote uh, democracy and moral law in Latin America is, as um, uh, Simone Bolivar said, uh, uh, freedom is uh, like plowing the sea. And there's a certain element of that if you're dealing if you're uh, representing the United States on these issues in Latin America. But I think the relationship between Latin America and the United States has evolved. I think there's, I'm not saying it's perfect, I'm not saying it uh, can't uh, get better, but I think there is, generally speaking, there are opportunities for greater uh, respect in each other. I think one of the challenges is the fact that One of the reasons the United States is always jumping in to support democracy and rule of law, human rights in Latin America is that other Latin American countries, by and large, um, for most of their history, have not done so. There's this this innate desire to respect each country's sovereignty. So what I've seen in my career is, when I was a young officer, the leftist parties in the region would were always denounce the United States for intervening. You know, I remember in Peru, in my first tour, there were certain members, there are certain senators from the United Left who would simply not meet with me because I was an American. There are certain people there who wouldn't even drink Coca-Cola because of America. Um, and you know, six, seven years later when Fujimori had carried out this coup and was on the way to becoming a authoritarian leader, um, there was a change. Um, they started meeting with us. Um, they realized that the United States, uh, when all was said and done, was um, still a power that could do good and with whom they could talk. So my hope is that uh, the United States, amidst its own intense political struggles and much of this similar to uh, the struggles over historical memory in Latin America. There's a struggle over historical memory and identity in the United States. To some extent serving overseas allows you to look at your own country with a different lens and to see things that um, can be either encouraging or alarming. So there, there is the United States is going through its own period here uh, but should I, my hope is that uh, that there can be better understanding. My hope is that uh, that uh, throughout the hemisphere, that democracy and rule of law doesn't take any more steps uh, backwards.
0: Well, that's a great way to <coughs> conclude the podcast. As we hope that this uh, our listeners will be able to learn from your own experience and what you've shared with us to help increase our our own understanding. Of the diplomatic side of international relations. So again, uh, I'd like to finish with thanking you, Stephen, for participating in our podcast and sharing your story with us. I hope it has been an opportunity to reflect on your life experience and share it with the public.
1: Well, thank you very much, and again, congratulations on the podcast. And I have enjoyed listening to a number of your episodes, and and my greetings again to all of your listeners uh, who and and uh, who are who shared uh, this. Um, your your intense interest in in history and the uses of history.